be able to extend the reach of the gospel. And over the past few weeks, we've looked at Paul. We looked at we've looked at Jesus. And so this next week, this week coming up, um, we'll continue to look at at the work that Jesus has done. And we're particularly looking at that today as we see the work that Jesus does to bring people to himself. Now, the particular scripture that we're using today is actually probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible, if not the most famous passage passage in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This is one of the most um, well-known scriptures, or it used to be. When I was coming up, I'll be honest, I don't even consciously remember learning this scripture. It's like I was born with this scripture already in my heart. I don't ever remember it being taught, this scripture. I just, somebody say John 3.16 and I knew it. I don't know how that was. Maybe it was because we were always in church and always hearing it. And one of the things that does um, grieve my heart a little bit is uh, where I teach, even at a Christian school now, many of the kids do not know John 3.16. They cannot quote it. They don't know what it says. And they don't even really know what it means. And that shows to me, like, in, in, in these recent years, I think there has been, it has been a detriment to many of our children that people are not faithfully expositing and teaching scripture. Many people are um, teaching prosperity gospel, trying to be famous, trying to be cool, trying to be this, trying to be that. And we're raising illiterate children who do not know what the Bible says. And because of that, they are going to every other source that is out there in the world to tell them what they should know about their lives. It tells them who they should love, how they should love, why they should do it, what they should do. And they're getting all of their moral compass from the world because many churches, many preachers, many teachers are failing to give them the biblical standard of living. And so what we seek to do specifically at this church is that not just give you what is comfortable for us all to hear, which is great if you want to be comforted, if you want to feel good about yourself. But what we try to do through scriptures reveal the truth of the Bible. And often what you realize is when you get a truth in the Bible, it's like lifting weight. Initially, it's painful. Initially, it is heavy on you. Initially, it's a burden. But the more you receive it, the more you lift it, the stronger you will get in your faith. And then it just means that you're ready for for new weight, new things. So that's what we want to do is extend our reach, not just among the people in the world, but even extend our reach among the people in this church so that people are growing. You're being stretched the gospel is, is pulling you in directions that it hasn't normally. So um, that's what we seek to do here in Victory City. Now, um, what we've probably not realized, even in John 3.16, because it's so quotable, we have probably not realized that in that scripture, it is, it is a dialogue that Jesus is having with a man. Now, that man's name is none other than Nicodemus. And we're all probably somewhat familiar with the text that is talking about Nicodemus, but we want to be able to see it with a greater eye today that when Nicodemus comes to Christ, he comes to Christ with both an inquisitive heart and a skeptical one as well. See, in this scripture, Jesus not only addressed his skepticism, but he also answered his heart. Even when Nicodemus was unwilling to fully put his heart on display. Listen, 
Jesus is the greatest man that has ever lived, and everything he does is in perfect alignment to the will of the Father. So today we will see how Jesus is able to permeate the soul of yet another and give even Nicodemus the gospel. My hope today is that we will all be encouraged by the redemptive work of Christ, the redemptive work of the gospel, and commit ourselves over and over and over again to get that gospel, to get that truth to everybody we know. Amen? Amen. So go with me, if you will, to the book of John, chapter 3, verse 1. And it reads, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And he says this, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Listen, the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you right now for your word. We thank you for everything that you have ingratiated in this Bible so that we can have eternal life. But God, it is not just for us. But you have given all of us eternal life so that we may share this gospel, share, share this truth that we have with everyone we know. God, as we read today, encourage us to see this text and to go get as many people the gospel as we can. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everybody said, Amen. Amen. So I'm just, I'm just excited about how we're going to break down this scripture today. Typically what I do, as you know, and you've probably taken note of the title, The Secret of Eternal Life or The Secret to Eternal Life. 
And typically what I do is I have these sermon points, and these points outline exactly what we're, what we're talking about. But today I want to do it a little differently. So there are still three points, but in these points it's explained in every passage of Scripture, and it is going to tell us every passage of Scripture and break it down in those different increments. And so the first thing that we're going to see today is the inquiry. It is the inquiry. We are introduced here to Nicodemus fairly quickly in this text, and we are immediately given great context on him and who he is. John tells us that Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, and he is a ruler of the Jews. Now, the Pharisees, as we've all talked about, are the, re- the religious zealots of the Jewish faith, and often their hypocrisy is the ire of Jesus. In fact, all throughout Scripture, Jesus does not convict one group of people more than the Pharisees. He addresses the hypocrisy of the Pharisees more than anybody else. In fact, Jesus even calls the Pharisees whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead bones. See, the Pharisees were legalists who claimed to have a near perfect obedience to the law, but what we realize is that their near perfect obedience to the law was because of their misinterpretation of the law. And all they did is they bent the rules and they bent the the law so that they would fit into the interpretation of their law in the first place. There is also no group that is more combative to Jesus than this group. Constantly we see them coming at him, approaching him, talking to him, addressing his ministry. Now, within this group, Nicodemus isn't just one of them, but Jesus calls him a ruler. He is a ruler. Because he is a ruler, that means he is a high-ranking official among these legalists who have been completely combative to the ministry of Jesus. Now, we may notice here that the Bible says that Nicodemus came by night. He came by night. Now, this may be interesting. Now, this is merely speculation on my point, but I think when we look throughout the annals of the text, we'll realize why Nicodemus came by night. I believe that Nicodemus comes by night because it's night and because he knows that no one else will see him if he's coming to Jesus at night. Now, there are some theologians and uh, commentators who agree with this, some disagree. I will tell you this. This is him coming at night. is not some deep theological point that represents the darkness of his spirit. No, he came at night so that nobody would see him. Now, the reason I believe this is let's look at the times that the Pharisees always approached Jesus. One, they always came as a group and they always came when during the day. In fact, not only did they come during the day, they always came when there were large groups of people surrounding Jesus so that they could interrogate his work and his mission and his ministry. And so I believe based on how they always would approach Jesus, the fact that Nicodemus makes a choice to come to Jesus at night was so that he couldn't be seen. So that those around him would not know that he was coming to Jesus. Now, he's simply trying to avoid the shame and the ridicule and even the disfavor he would have gotten from his own people. 
When Nicodemus has this private meeting with Jesus, he does so because he is interested in the miracles that Jesus had performed. He is interested in those signs that he has seen Jesus perform. Now, when he comes to Jesus, he calls him rabbi. He says, rabbi, teacher. Now, this may seem like a moot point to us, but let me make it clear. And I call Jesus a rabbi because he was. But according to what they had to do to be a rabbi, Jesus was no rabbi. In fact, Nicodemus has gone through more education, more training, more school than Jesus has. So if anybody should have been referred to somebody as a rabbi, Jesus should have been calling Nicodemus a rabbi because he was. Nicodemus, in fact, was far more educated and traditional educating than Jesus would have been. So when he calls him rabbi or teacher, Jesus doesn't seem moved by this. In fact, he doesn't just say rabbi teacher. He says, rabbi teacher, we know that you are a teacher. Come from where? Come from God. Now, at this point, this doesn't seem like much of an inquiry on the part of Nicodemus as much as it is an emphatic proclamation. We know that God has sent you. How does he know? Yet appear to be so unsure. How can he know for a fact that God sent this man but be so unsure that this man was actually God sent? Listen, prior to this occasion, and you're probably aware of this, there is a wedding that happens in Cana. In that wedding at Cana, what happens? Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, listen, they have run out of wine. I need you to do something about it. And what does Jesus say? He says, woman, my hour has not come yet. Now, that terminology is going to be very significant in a second. But what he says is, it's not time for me to do what it is I need to do. But they're at a wedding. The fact that Mary was the one who came to Jesus probably lets us know that either they were close friends with the people at that wedding or they were related. Now, undoubtedly, there are a large, a large group of people here, primarily Jews, who are going to be at this wedding feast. And I would also argue to you that, you know who else might have been there? Nicodemus. Not only was Nicodemus probably there, even if he wasn't there, he had heard of exactly what Jesus had done at that wedding at Cana. He takes these massive jugs that are filled with water and he turns them in an instant into wine. So even if he hadn't seen it, Nicodemus at this point has heard of this. Now, I want you to see something here. Nicodemus is claiming that he knows that Jesus is a rabbi or a teacher from God. And he says, I know that you are a teacher sent from God. But what does he say shows him that? He says, because of the signs that you do. Do you see the contradiction here? I see that you are a teacher, but not because of what you teach. I know that you are sent from God, not because of what you're preaching and teaching, but because of what I've heard and seen. Listen, if you want to ever get the condemnation of Jesus, be more focused on his miracles than his teaching. In fact, we also see in John, there's a large group of people who come to him who want all these miracles to be performed. And Jesus tells them, you seek a sign. You seek a sign to validate me. 
But it's the teaching that should validate that he is sent from God. How dare Nicodemus say, I know that you are a teacher sent from God, but I only know that because I've heard of what you do. See, Nicodemus is not focused on the teaching of Jesus as much as what he can gain from Jesus. In fact, if it had been the teaching of Jesus which had converted Nicodemus, he would not have come to Christ in secret, but rather he would have yelled on the rooftops, this man is sent from God, come hear what he is teaching. But he doesn't do that. He has seen that Jesus is performing miracle after miracle. And I would probably argue that he just wanted a peace. And so he comes to Jesus and says, I know that you're a teacher from God, but I need some stuff for you to do. I got some stuff I need you to do. And clearly God has sent you. Now, so what does Jesus do? I love Jesus, obviously. Jesus answers the question that Nicodemus never asked. Nicodemus doesn't even ask ask a question, yet Jesus answered him. It's the question he should have asked. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this is very interesting terminology. The word that Jesus uses here literally means unless one is born from above, born from above, unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. See, Nicodemus came merely to get a glimpse of God in Jesus. But Jesus tells him that unless you are born again, then all you will ever have is a glimpse. And Jesus is more than a glimpse of God. He is God in the flesh. He's not just our clever little glimpse. He is God in the flesh. And so when he says that we know that you are a teacher from God, I think Nicodemus sees that Jesus is no more than just one of the other prophets. See, the problem with other religions that believe in Jesus, in fact, most religions will tell you Jesus existed. He was a wonderful teacher. He was a wonderful man. He lived a moral life. He was a great prophet, but he wasn't God in the flesh. What we proclaim is that Jesus was God in the flesh. He is more than just what the Muslims think a good teacher. He is more than just what Siddhartha Khan said about him. Just a good prophet. He is God. That brings us to the second session. Initially, I wanted to entitle this the indignance of Nicodemus, but I think the ignorance is better. The ignorance. Jesus tells Nicodemus that unless he is born from above, unless he is born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. And I think we can all see that Nicodemus is not quite grasping the full measure of what exactly Jesus is saying here. Now, we can say that Nicodemus is either being disingenuous or intentionally obtuse. Perhaps. Perhaps he is, but... Even in that, to be born again is a completely foreign concept to Nicodemus. 
Now, it shouldn't be because he should know scripture. He should be well aware that Jesus is Messiah that would come. But something else is going on here, and we must see it clearly. And I want you to be able to see this clearly because I don't want any of us to fall into this trap. But I also want us to be able to identify when we see that other people have fallen into this trap. All of this man's life, all of the life of Nicodemus, he has been told that perfect obedience to the law gives him, guarantees him a spot in the coming kingdom. He has been told that as long as you check every box, cross every T, dot every I, as long as you do good things, you will be accepted of God. And in one fell swoop, Jesus completely transcends his life and says, unless you are accepted of me, there is nothing good that you can reasonably do. See, what Nicodemus all of a sudden realizes is that everything that he has believed his entire life is completely antithetical to the gospel. And it's not about what he can do, but it's about what Jesus is going to do. And so his whole life, and maybe some of us in this room have fallen into this trap, he thought, I got to try hard enough. I got to be good enough. I got to do good things. I got to be a moral person. I got to do this. I got to do that. And Jesus says, unless you are born again, the kingdom you will not see. Now, let's talk about this. Can you imagine thinking that the entirety of your life you had a spot guaranteed in the kingdom of God and Jesus, the man who came to bring that kingdom, tells you that there is no spot there for you. In fact, he says, everything that you have been doing, everything you have been believing, it's a farce. It's for nothing. See, let me try to make this clear. In the Lord's Prayer, we are told Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. But where is the kingdom? As it is in heaven. See, when Jesus teaches this, he says anything that happens here on earth is a reflection of the kingdom, which is already in heaven. That is where the kingdom is. They thought that Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom there and he would reward all the good, moral, legalistic people who pretended to keep all the laws. And Jesus says, no, I didn't come to bring you the kingdom. I came to bring you into the kingdom. And that is a completely foreign concept to Nicodemus. When he and all the Jews believed, what they all believed is that the Messiah would come and he would come establish that physical kingdom. But as we remember from a few weeks ago, the scripture tells us the time is coming and now is where they who worship will worship God in spirit. And in truth, which means you cannot fully worship him or worship him at all merely by trying to be a perfect moral Christian unless the spirit of God has been placed inside of you. All of our worship is unacceptable. 
it means nothing. In fact, Jesus has a thing. Until you have the spirit, you can't have the kingdom. In fact, he teaches in scripture, none of us who, any of us who do not have the spirit, guess what we are? We're none of his. See, the only way to get a new spirit is that we must get new hearts. And the only way we get new hearts is that we must be born again. So when we see this man asking this question, I would probably submit that he's not asking in indignance. He's asking because he's concerned. He realizes in this very moment, everything that he had worked for is void. It is empty. It is meaningless work that instead of pushed him closer to the kingdom was actually creating more and more of a distance in between him and the kingdom. So again, in his ignorance, he asked, how can a man be born when he is old? Now, obviously, he's ignorant, but that is because the gospel has not transcended his heart to this point. Listen, until God sovereignly reveals the gospel to our hearts, we are blind, deaf and dumb to the truth. Then Jesus offers him further explanation. He says, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit. Now, I know that many of us, especially if you came out of a traditionally Pentecostal Reformation, you probably think that this is talking about baptism. This is why many churches teach that if you don't get baptized after your salvation, that your salvation is incomplete, which is a dangerous theology. Because if I get saved and I go right out there and get hit by a car, either I was saved or I wasn't. If I didn't get baptized, that that baptism doesn't complete my salvation. My salvation is complete in him. How do we know that? Because when Jesus on the cross died, he said, Tetelest, I paid in full. It is finished. Which means the saving work of Christ was finished on the cross. There is nothing extra that we need to do except repent and believe. Anything else we need to do in order to be saved means that we are responsible for our salvation. We are not his. So I don't want you to get caught up in a works-based faith and think maybe I got baptized in the wrong name. Maybe I got baptized. Maybe I, ain't been, I don't know what's going on. If you have been born by the Spirit, you are born again. So what does he mean here? See, you know, my joy is always when I can give you the context that maybe other people haven't given you because then that strips the power off of me and it puts all the power on scripture. And that means I cannot hold anything over your head, any theological point over your head, any false truth over your head unless it is found in these 66 books. This is true. Let God be true and every man a lie. The Bible is true. So let's see where they get that from. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 23, this is what Jesus means. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. 
I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And this is it. I will sprinkle you clean. I will sprinkle you clean water on you and you shall be the be clean from all your uncleanness cleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. See that? It's not talking about baptism. But then look at the next point. And I will give you what? A new heart. And what else? A new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. See, if we are looking at this scripture, this is not talking about baptism. The water is always symbolic that Jesus will cleanse us. He will purify us from the inside out. And we know that because remember when Peter comes to him, we saw this a few weeks ago. He says, wash my whole body. He says, unless I cleanse you, unless I purify your hearts, you have no part with me. When you are born of the spirit, he gives you a new clean heart that he has washed clean. He has purified us. And so when we get baptized, it is just symbolic of what he has already done in us. That's it. And so when he does this, he cleanses us. He gives us a new heart and he gives us a new spirit. What is that spirit called? It is the Holy Spirit that he has sent to us. So let's clear up what Jesus means by born again because we hear it and we feel like we immediately know. But what Jesus is saying here resonates so much deeper than we think. Jesus says, unless you are born again, born again, think about birth, which unfortunately or fortunately, we're thinking a lot about birth these days because at some point we're going to have another baby born. But let, let me think, let me get you to think about birth. If you are being born, just in case you've never realized this, it is the most passive thing you can do. Because you don't control it. A baby, when a baby is born, does not hit a time clock and say, all right, it's time for me to exit. It is not until the uterus starts to contract and push that baby out, which whether that baby wants to come out or not, when the body says it's time for you to go, that baby has to go. That is what it means to be born. Now, when they're telling, when he's telling them you need to be born again, that's completely antithetical to everything Nicodemus believed. He believed he had to work hard. He had to do the work. But Jesus is saying, just like in birth, the mother does all the work. She has sacrificed her body. She has sacrificed her livelihood. You are born because of the sacrifice of another. Unless you accept the sacrifice that I'm going to make on the cross, you cannot be born again. Jesus did the work and he births us into new life. That's what it means to be born again. 
that we accept that he has done the labor, he has done the sacrificing. And there's nothing we can do about it. See, this man's whole life was about him seeking for righteousness in his own life. But Jesus comes and says, without me and without what I'm going to do, you have no hope of righteousness. There's this episode of, of Seinfeld, and I, I don't watch much TV, but Seinfeld is about the only show that I watch, and I constantly record it. There's this episode of Seinfeld where Jerry, and if you don't know, Jerry is Jewish, and he buys his parents a car. He gets a really good payday, and he buys his parents a car. And Kramer comes in the door. He says, you're going to get some really good points with God on this one. And he says, I'm banking on it. That's most of us. That's most of us. We think that these deeds that we are going to do are going to give us some kind of merit with God. And this is what most non-believers are dealing with that we're going to face. In fact, this girl that I was witnessing to on Friday, who I believe became a Christian, we reached a breaking point to which she said, Mr. Knight, I have tried everything. I have done everything. I have worked hard. I have prayed. I've done everything. She says, you don't understand. My, my dad is Muslim and my mother is Roman Catholic. I've worked hard and I'm not saved. And I said, that's why you're not saved. Because you think there's something you can do to attain that salvation. It is not until you look up at Christ and you see what he has done that he will take your stony heart and he will turn it into flesh. You can't do that on your own. You have to look to him. And, she, and then with tears in her eyes. She says, but I've prayed hard and I've cried and I've prayed. And she's crying at this point. And this was the first sign of true repentance in her life. She said, I've just never been able to feel anything and I just really want to feel something. And I opened this book by Charles Spurgeon, All of Grace. And he talked about his own need for salvation. These were his words. When he wasn't saved, he said, I wept because I could not weep. He said, I sorrowed for my own sin because I could not sorrow. And this is the crowning verse. He says, but then I realized no matter how pure my tears are, there was always some dirt in them. There is always something to be repented of. And the only way I can ever be pure is when he purifies me, when he cleanses me, and when he saves me. Finally, our last point, theme is the invitation. It is the invitation. Knowing that this man's only hope of righteousness came from Jesus, he invites him to join him. I can imagine this man is still wondering what he must do. He wasn't just any religious leader. He wasn't just any Jewish teacher. But it says that he was a ruler. And even Jesus calls him the teacher. Which means he was the respected authority when it came to teaching. 
No one exceeded his ability among the Pharisees, but that had not brought him into saving faith. Jesus then confirms that there was nothing Nicodemus could do for himself to gain salvation. And he tells me, he says, listen, the wind blows where it wants and you hear the sound, but you cannot control it. And he says the same is with the spirit. We are not in control of what, where the spirit goes and to whom it is given. And this again reminded me of the testimony of Charles Spurgeon. And just in case you've never heard it, I'm going to give it to you. Charles Spurgeon was a teenager who all of his life, like Nicodemus, he had been wandering, he had been working. He had believed that all of his life was determined on his ability to get salvation. Yet he had wandered and labored in vain. And so one day, it was an incredible blizzard, and he's on his way to church, and he realizes he's not going to make it to his church. And so he stops in this little old Methodist church. And when he stops in that little Methodist church, there are about three or four people there because even the pastor couldn't couldn't make it in the snow. And when he gets in there, there's a lay person who's preaching. And that that lay person, because he's a terrible teacher, he doesn't know how to preach. He can't preach. And so all he did was he opened his Bible up to a verse and he opened it up to Isaiah 45. And Isaiah 45 says, look to him, look to God and be saved. And so Charles Spurgeon is sitting there and this man is just repeating over and over again, look to God. And he looks at Charles Spurgeon and he says, young man, you look pretty miserable. Look to God and be saved. And Charles Spurgeon says the gospel had finally hit him. That all his life, he had worked, he had labored, he had tried to earn salvation on his own. And he says it was all just a matter of him looking at the cross, seeing what Jesus had done on the cross. And in that moment, he knew there was nothing he could do to save himself. There was no worth in him at all, but Jesus Christ alone had done everything to save him. And when he looked, he said, I was saved because I gave up on trying. He has done everything. He realized that his whole life had been devoted trying to figure out how to be right, how to be righteous. But he had failed miserably. And he merely looked. Jesus had done the work. And it was complete in him. Everything that he was trying to do. Everything that you may be trying to do to get salvation. It has been done. It's already been done. And knowing that it has been done, when you repent and believe, when you turn away, which you can't even repent without the Holy Spirit, when you turn away from the direction you were headed in your life and you believe the gospel, he seals you. He secures you until the day of Jesus Christ. Those that are in his hand, there is no one who can snatch them out. 
It was paid in full. The finished work of Christ. Nicodemus, however, still concerned about his own righteousness. We will see. He will come to look. Before him stood the righteousness he was trying to work hard and attain. And that is it. We must see him and his work and his righteousness and know that it is only made possible by Jesus Christ. Try all we might, we labor in vain. This is what people must know. And we must be the ones to tell them. They will all seek to appease God through their own righteousness. We will all seek to appease God through our own deeds. But we need him in order to even have a shot of righteousness. This is the invitation. This is the invitation. Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. It's him. He's knocking. We are not even knocking. We don't even know where the door is. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Listen to this. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and he with me. That is the promise, people. We can't do anything but just know at the door of your heart, Jesus Christ is knocking. Will you hear and answer the call? All we can do is respond to the call. All we can do is respond to what he has done. It is finished. And the beautiful thing is, is that even if you are not a Christian today at this hour, even if at 1115 you are not a Christian and say today just isn't your day. If today isn't your day, this is good news. Jesus knows the day you will become one. He knows the day that you're going to answer that call. And in that day, you will then know your name is written. But this is the beautiful thing, and I want you to hear this, and I'm done. If you are in this room today and you are not a Christian, and even though he knows the day you will become one, your name is already there. He's just waiting on you. That is the beauty of our salvation. And I would implore to you today, whoever you may be, wherever you may be spiritually, where you are in life, if you felt like, you know what, I have worked, I have labored, I have toiled in vain, and it has brought me no connection to God, let this be the day that you look to him and you see what he has done on the cross.